This episode of New Politics was released on the 11th of June, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, how long can a new government be blamed for all the faults of the previous government? The real cause of high gas prices in Australia? And we look at the new shadow ministry and see if they've got anything to offer. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. You don't know my story. Only God can judge me. And a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks for signing up. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. been three weeks since the new Labor government was installed, but they're already being blamed for not fixing up cost of living problems, they're being blamed for high gas prices and not fixing up those issues as well, and there was a 50 basis point rise to the cash rate to 0.85%, so they're being blamed for that as well. The previous Liberal National Coalition government, they were in office for nine years. They failed to implement any kind of efficient national energy plan, they failed to address long-term cost of living pressures, and they left the finances in disarray with rising inflation, an almost $1 trillion national government debt, and a low-wage economy that isn't working in the interests of the community. Governments do have to take on responsibilities for repairing whichever problems they are faced with, but is it fair to blame a three-week-old government for all the problems that have been inherited from over the past nine years? Yeah, obviously it's not fair. Had we been around in uh, 2013, we'd have given the coalition some time to, to see what they were really like, except we already knew that Tony Abbott had been a fairly brutal yet not terribly useful opposition leader. The first six months of the government will be trying to fix the problems of the last nine years easily. And I guess where we come in here is, are they fixing it well enough? And it's still too early to tell. Some things they have done really amazingly well at. The problems that the coalition left in the South Pacific have been more or less fixed in two weeks. I note that Jacinda Ardern is visiting Australia, and that will be the first international visit by a world leader to Australia with the new government. And that's appropriate too, because relations were getting strained. And I suspect partly because the Ardern government is a left-wing government, and to make matters worse, she's a woman, and the LNP couldn't handle that. And not only that, she is a woman who is very effective and who does good governance who comes across very well. And that's probably who they hate the most. There's a long list of people they hate, but competent, capable women who don't toe the line are people who they hate the most, I think. So with foreign affairs, the Labor Party has done extremely well. Not a lot else has been done just yet because the problems are huge. How do you fix the wage issue? Well, you raise wages. But in a high inflationary period where business expenses are high, is that the smartest thing to do in the short term? 
Can they force interest rates down? That's unlikely. They may be able to stop the growth and the, the large jump this week or the relatively large jump this week might be enough to stave it off. They've started cleaning out, actually. The head of the NDIS uh, resigned and Phil Gachin's resigned. So those more political appointments are starting to be cleared out. Fair Work Commission is going to be interesting. Those are statutory jobs. So whether they can get rid of the ideologically appointed members or not may be difficult. But they may extend the board to neutralise it a bit. We don't know yet. But there's a lot of challenges yet to come. And in the first three weeks, we can say that they've done a fairly decent job so far and hopefully they'll keep it up. And of course, as always with this stuff, political heroes always disappoint. And at some point, there's going to be a decision made. It might be a decision that's objectively wrong. It might be a decision that has to be done and nobody wants it, but that's the only way through. But at some point, it's going to happen. We should be prepared for that. Well, nothing is really ever fair in politics, and and it's also a case where governments just have to deal with the cards that they're dealt with and play with that hand. But it is the job of any government to deal with the problems that they're faced with. So whether that's fair or unfair, that's just the nature of governing. And, and it's never good enough to just keep saying, well, that was all caused by the previous government and that's the end of the matter. But it is a bit rich for the Liberal National Parties, they're now in opposition, to start attacking the new Labor government for not resolving these problems within three weeks of assuming office. And and I do think that the electorate can recognise that a new government can't be blamed for the problems caused by another government, but they can be responsible for addressing these problems. But it seems that the media is also starting to push the narrative that we've only had three weeks of a Labor government and look what's happening. Interest rates are going up. Energy prices are out of control. But it is up to the Labor Party to push a counter-narrative in the political domain that these problems will take some time to resolve and they're certainly not going to be resolved within three weeks. And it also brings up the question, well, how long can a previous government be held responsible after they leave office? And Conservative governments have that long tradition of blaming Labor, especially for fiscal problems. The Howard government blamed Kim Beasley for a $10 billion budget black hole all the way back in 1996. And that's a little bit laughable in the context of a national government debt, which currently stands at a trillion dollars. And the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison governments, they kept on blaming the Rudd and Gillard Labor governments for all their budget problems. And they did that for almost nine years after Rudd and Gillard left office. And, and of course, Labor will try and apportion blame on the previous Liberal national governments. But how long do you think it's possible to keep doing this before it loses its effectiveness as a political message? It, I talk to people all the time, as, as we all do. And Sometimes people say, oh, but Labor spends and spends. And when you sit down and show them the facts, that taxes are generally lower under Labor, incomes are generally higher, and that all governments in the way that the economy is set up have parts that they can't control and international factors make a deal. And you know things like the GFC, how well that was handled and that Australia missed the GFC. And you can see that people start to realise, oh, wait, hold on. Yeah, you're right. So it, it's been put in almost subconsciously that Labor is bad for the economy and Liberal is good for the economy. But when people are given the facts, and you know we don't do it aggressively, or it's not an argument, it's, oh, there's this and this, and they say, oh, but what about the pink bats? And you go through the statistics on that, for example, 
and then petrol prices and explaining that the government of the day really has very little to do with petrol prices except they can cut the tax on them maybe or they can um, attempt to put a cap on it although the ACCC probably won't like that. A lot of the prices out of the control so even when the prices were high under Morrison he and he was getting the blame for it it wasn't really his fault one of the few negative things happening in government that wasn't his fault there was enough going around to blame him for so don't think oh no I've wasted my vote because high petrol prices weren't his fault no it's okay there's plenty of other stuff that people voted against him for it becomes this given of history that Labour is a bad economic managers And that's despite 12 years of Hawke and Keating. Keating wins the award for world's best treasurer from a legitimate organisation. Wayne Swan wins it from a legitimate organisation. And liberal treasurers tend not to be as well regarded as the Labour ones do. And I'm talking internationally here. And now there's a whole other range of arguments you could bring in here. Who are they serving? Blah, 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 blah. And that's a legitimate discussion we can have at another time. But when you get down to objective facts, Labor has tended to manage the economy better than the Liberal Party has. Well, quite often within the field of politics, the facts don't really matter. It's a question of what people believe or don't (laughs) believe. But one area that we can definitely blame the Liberal Party for is for the high gas prices all across Australia. And this isn't just the previous government. It goes all the way back to 2002 when Prime Minister John Howard, he negotiated a $25 billion liquid gas deal with China. And it wasn't so much a negotiation, but it might have been a case where the Chinese government saw little John Howard coming in from a mile away. And the price was fixed at historically low levels for gas. And and it was at a fixed price that couldn't be negotiated upwards. And it meant that by 2015, just 13 years later, China was paying a third of the price Australian consumers were paying. World gas commodity prices rose dramatically and China will continue paying paying this fixed price set in 2002 up until 2031. That's nine years away. And they're paying that fixed price for 3 million tonnes of liquid gas each and every year. Now, this is an atrociously bad deal. And sometimes these deals are created to get favourable treatment with other trade commodities, the old quid pro quo. But this is a really bad deal for the Australian gas consumer and the Australian taxpayer. And other governments, including the Labor government between 2007 and 13. They've also created similar deals with China, Japan and South Korea, but they're all pretty bad deals, but nowhere near as bad as the original deal John Howard signed with China in 2002. Western Australia is the only state that has a 15% minimum reserve requirement for domestic markets, but every other part of Australia is pretty much open slather. And we've got this ridiculous situation where Australia buys back the gas that it sells to Southeast Asia at a premium price. And I think a great strategy, whenever the Labor government gets blamed for things going wrong within the gas and energy markets, well, it needs to let the public know who created this bizarre situation in the first place. And that was the Howard government back in 2002. There was no future proofing, there were no safeguards, there were no checks and balances to see whether this was value for money for the Australian community. And as it turns out, there has been no benefit at all. And we've been ripped off as part of this process. They must have seen them coming. When Kerry Packer bought back Channel 9 from Alan Bond, he said something like, you only get one Alan Bond in a lifetime. I'm pretty sure the Chinese government have said you only get one Howard government in a lifetime. (laughs) There's also, uh, we sell the gas to Japan and then they sell it back to us at, at a massive profit as well. I don't quite know what they were thinking, except 
the rather large amount of money, even though it's too cheap, is going into the pockets of donors. It's not going back into the Commonwealth. This could probably be taken to court. I wonder what the High Court would find from a constitutional standpoint. As the Constitution basically states that the natural resources belong to the Commonwealth, not to individuals. And so to sell them off at an unfair price may be seen to be unconstitutional. But just looking at it from the outside a little bit, and to be fair, fairly superficially, seems to me that a high court case might stop this type of nonsense from ever happening again, at least. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now support New Politics through Patreon. It suffers in here And you win the front row wall Covered in beer And club bonus loans Say the place is wrecked as your fault uh-uh. If the roof is on fire It's an electrical fault Man a vegetable bowl When I bring it live Like Friday night Footy in my hoodie I can hide I so Anthony Albanese has been the Prime Minister for three weeks and while there's been a clamour from the opposition and from the media to fix up all of these problems they've inherited from the Liberal National Government from over the past nine years, you referred to this before David, that the new Labor Government is travelling at such a rapid rate that they might end up resolving all of these problems within the first three weeks or so anyway. So already the new Labor Government has gone a long way to restoring an equilibrium with their partners in the Pacific region. Albanese has already led a high-level diplomatic group to Indonesia, trying to cement the relationships with the larger countries in the Southeast Asia region, and especially Indonesia. And we keep forgetting that Indonesia is a large country with a population of 270 million people right on our doorstep, and the economic and cultural ties with Indonesia could always be much stronger than they currently are. And a long gaping sore in Australia's immigration detention policy has been resolved. The Billow family... Uh, were loved and wanted by their local community. Uh, This guy, Nardes, worked at the local meatworks. We import people to work in meatworks because we can't find enough workers. And here we grabbed this family in the middle of the night, took them down to Melbourne, then took them to Christmas Island, then they've ended up in Perth after these little girls who were born in Australia Uh, got not just mental health issues, but physical health issues as well. I'm very proud we've brought this family home. I am very proud, and the community will be as well. Uh, We shouldn't... No no people uh, should be treated in that way. Governments always have choices in every action that they take. Sometimes they have to make tough choices, but they can choose to do the right thing, or they can choose to behave politically. And... Within three weeks, Albanese has patched up the relationships with Pacific Islands, attended the Quad meeting in Japan, created closer ties with Indonesia, signposted Indigenous Affairs as a key policy agenda. He's released the Murugupan family back to Biloela in Queensland. Of course, the work of government is a lot more than just these issues, but the opposition and media is looking for someone to blame for all of the failings of the previous government. And in the meantime... 
the Labor government is just getting on with the things that it needs to get on with. And this is what good governments do. They don't worry about the riffraff. They're not sidetracked by the politics or the spin of every specific situation. They just get on with the role of government. And this is exactly what this new Labor government is doing. It's the grieving process of the side that lost. It is the mainstream media, the a lot of commentators and a, a lot of the remaining Liberal Party in office and National Party too are struggling to come to terms with having lost. Now, this is okay. I, I'm not saying that they shouldn't feel sad that the job that they did for nine years, no matter how we might not have liked how they did it, we'll, we'll put it diplomatically, doesn't mean to say that they're not going to feel that loss. But watching the, the relevance deprivation syndrome come through is also instructive and it's being nurtured and I think that's the problem. Well, one of the key issues that did come out of the 2022 federal election was the diminishing relevance of the mainstream media and their influence on determining political outcomes. And we'll continue to complain about their behaviour and the way that they do report on national political affairs, which I think have been quite abysmal. But it seems like this might not be so relevant anymore. And they might already be preaching to an already converted Liberal National Party leaning audience anyway. And they're still doing their best to push the Liberal and National Parties, even though they're no longer in government. But for most of the past nine years in government, and David, you and I have mentioned this quite a few times in our previous podcast episodes, that the Liberal National Coalition has behaved like a party in opposition. They've always been an oppositional sort of party, whether they're in government or opposition. And of course, now that they're in opposition, they're behaving like a real opposition party. But all of this conservative political behaviour, which is modelled on the Republican Party in the United States, as repugnant as all of this is, all of the race baiting, the attacks on China, locking up people in immigration detentions, targeting minorities, it can realistically only work for you if you're in government. If you start behaving like this as an opposition, you come across as racist rat bags and you're just being an opposition for the sake of being an opposition with nothing meaningful to offer and without the imprimatur of government this type of behavior is meaningless and fails to gain traction the liberal and national parties will keep trying it but i just don't think that it's going to work in the same way as, as before one of these podcasts i think i'm going to do an analysis on how much was scott morrison to blame and short answer a lot but not all of it. But one of the things that he is to blame for is the complete destruction of the Liberal Party reputation. One of the other things, too, is that they didn't pass a lot of legislation deliberately. The whole idea was to remove government from our lives, which they bring in at a time where government was desperately needed. They had no model for removing it, just to gut it and hope that people would just get on with it. What this has also left is that a lot of the objectively bad results of their work can be easily overturned because they started going through policy rather than legislation. So now, um, instead of having to go through the whole procedure of revoking legislation, they just write a new policy over the top of the one. And then you can legislate the stuff that you think is important. Of course, legislation can be overturned and often is. But it's a little bit harder to do, and often oppositions that become government find it a little bit hard to replace existing legislation, whereas policy work can be overturned fairly simply. It's not always simply, and I don't want to disparage any of our listeners who are policy makers, 
but it didn't give a very good framework for permanency because essentially they didn't finish the job they had set out to do. Well, Scott Morrison has, has gone now. Of course, he's still on the backbench, and who knows what his future is going to be. But Peter Dutton, he's the new opposition leader. He has announced his new shadow ministry, and there's 10 women in the shadow cabinet of 24, 17 of the 44 in the full shadow ministry are women. Angus Taylor is shadow treasurer. There's a lot of old faces from the last days of the Morrison government, and of course, there's a lot of government experience in there. But most of these people, Alan Tudge, Anne Rustin, Dan Tahan, Karen Andrews, Nola Marino, Paul Fletcher, Stuart Robert, Bridget McKenzie, Barnaby Joyce, Michael McCormack, they were all serial underperformers while they were in government, and some of them are actually under a cloud of corruption. And, and all of this seems to be a continuation of that lineage back to the Howard government, which ended in 2007, that's 15 years ago. Peter Dutton did first enter parliament in 2001, and that was at the beginning of the second part of the Howard era. And it seems like these are just a similar group of players from the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison governments. And you can't keep using yesterday's people for today, but you can only choose from the people that are actually in Parliament. But it's only been the first week of Dutton's shadow ministry, and it seems like they've decided that the best way for them to return to government in the near future is to embark on a particularly obnoxious type of populist conservatism, even though this brand of politics was just rejected by the electorate at the most recent federal election. They're listening to some parts, and I can't help but feel that the reason they've got so many women in is partly because they've looked at what the electorate has said and thought we need to fix this issue we have, I'll be fair, but also that there's just not a lot of people left. They lost 20 seats. They lost a lot of key ministers and figures. So I suspect it was more happy accident that they have more women than it was a defined strategy. And, of course, some of the women in the shadow cabinet aren't people you'd really want back in government, let's be fair. I don't know all of them. There may be some really brilliant performers who are going to be part of the rebuild to bring back a glorious new Liberal Party and National Party. And, of course, one thing you should never underdo is underestimate women from the country. I think the future of the National Party might be in its female candidates, not the ones that we know through corruption, but some of the other ones who you don't hear from a lot. Yeah, having said that, it'd be interesting when they start to win seats back, if they start to win seats back, how many women they keep on the front bench and how many will be demoted for spurious reasons. But we can't say anything till that's done, though. Well, I guess the other factor is that if you've got a 44 in your full shadow ministry and you've got 58 MPs and 31 senators to choose from for a total of 89, that means that almost half of your parliamentary team ends up becoming a shadow minister. And it also means that you might be filling up those numbers with people who might not actually be up to the job. Robert Menzies lamented the fact that he had to choose a ministry with equal representation from all states. And he said, you know, you might have five really great Victorian performers, but I could only use three of them because I had to use people from other states who maybe weren't as good as the two I had to cut. But that's the nature of it. And when you add in the factions as well, the choices do get very limited. And that's for all parties too. I'm not criticising the structure of the Liberal Party here. That's just the way that they have to do. And pretty much nearly everybody gets a go <laughs> in the, the Liberal Party. But that is political fortune. You're listening to New Politics 
you can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now support New Politics through Patreon. One idea that is getting a big push by the new opposition, and it's being followed up by the mainstream media, of course, is this notion that the new Labor government was not chosen by 68% of the electorate. And this refers to the 32% primary vote received by the Labor Party at the recent election. And this is a part of the process to delegitimise the Labor election victory. And this all commenced on election night itself. And, and this is quite a new approach in Australian politics. It's not quite up there with the stolen election narrative used by the Republicans in the 2020 United States presidential election, but it is getting close. In Australia... I'm not sure if the Liberal Party understands this, but in Australia, it's not the amount of primary votes a party receives. It's not even a matter of the preference votes that a party receives. It's the party that wins the most seats out of the 151 seats on offer. They're the ones that win the election and then go on to form government. And that's the way that it's always been in Australian elections since 1901. And most elections all around the world use this very simple formula. No one has ever mentioned that 60% didn't choose the Liberal National Coalition in the 2019 federal election, and therefore, because of that, they were an illegitimate government. And they won 77 seats at the 2019 federal election, as did the Labor Party in 2022. And that's how you win elections and then go on to form government. So this is an old conservative trick, try to destabilise a new Labor government, pushing that idea that somehow they're illegitimate, they didn't win enough votes. And this sort of idea goes back all the way to the Whitlam government, that somehow Labor governments are never deserving of being office. There's always an excuse for them being there. They shouldn't be there. And this is all lapped up by a mainstream media who's only too happy to support this kind of rubbish. But perhaps the best approach for Labor is to copy the strategy of the Andrews government in Victoria. Don't mention the opposition leader's name at all. Don't even mention the opposition parties. Just get on with the task of government. Follow your own agenda. Worry about your own people and don't get caught up with all of these peripheral issues. I think they're doing a good enough job in being ignored themselves in a sense. Angus Taylor had a press conference in which there was no press. Now, it's difficult for oppositions and Labor struggled with that for many, many years. Really, I think the still the most effective person who could cut through on that was Kevin Rudd. Having said that, obviously the current Labor team did a very good job in being able to av- avoid being ignored by the mainstream media. I think Peter Dutton was the wrong choice and David Littleproud was the wrong choice. So they'll be easy to ignore. And to get back to the other point, Labor has won more seats than the Liberal Party and it won more seats than the National Party. The coalition had to exist so that they could keep Labor out. If the coalition wasn't there, the Liberal Party has only ever been able to govern in its own right about three times 
since 1921, maybe four. Otherwise, it takes two parties to defeat the Labor Party. So when they start to say things like, oh, Labor only got so many percentage of the vote, they have to be very careful that people don't start to notice just how many seats they win without the National Party and with Labor in opposition. I know that they don't like people understanding the preferential system because in elections in which the preferential system was used effectively, such as the last election, the 2022 election, and actually the 2019 election where Morrison was able to sneak through, things get out of their control. The other thing that I've never understood is this call to have non-compulsory voting in Australia. And the argument is is that it favours Labor and it's unfair to the non-Labor side. And yet, When you look at the percentage of time that the non-Labor side has spent in government being legitimately voted in, I don't understand why. But again, it's coming out of the American playbook. And the other big story of the week, too, was um, where Anthony Albanese described how there was this attempt to suppress votes in the Northern Territory. And we can also point to places like Lismore, where there was only one pre-polling booth, which was 10Ks out of the town. Now, of course, there was extra logistical challenges there, but there's been a defunding and a hollowing out of the AEC. And I think that should be one of the priorities of the Labor government is to bring that back in. Well, that's one factor that influences election outcomes, but... But I have been quite bemused by this whole process of saying, well, look, only 32% of the population gave Labor their first preference. And it's primarily being made to suggest that it's a government which doesn't deserve to be in office. But even in the first past the post systems like they do have in Britain, the Conservatives won in a landslide victory at the election in 2019. But only 43% of people voted for them. So no one has ever considered, well, what about the 57% of people who didn't vote for the Conservative Party? So this is all just a shallow argument. You're never going to get 100% of people supported by their choice of government. And even in the mixed member system, such as the one in New Zealand, and that's a much fairer system, it's still based on whichever party wins the most seats. And that system does try to create inequality between the number of votes won and the number of seats won and the coalition has benefited by winning government without winning the highest number of votes in the past and if they don't like the system well they should offer a better system and try and change the current system but I'm not too sure if this message of trying to delegitimize the Labor government is going to have much resonance within the electorate. These things come back to bite and of course a percentage of the people who said well we'd rather vote for the Greens or an independent But if they don't get in, or any of the other minor parties, if they don't get in, we'll put Labor at number two, so that if our preferred candidate doesn't get in, our next preferred candidate gets in. And that's why it's called preferential voting. (laughs) So it is the number of votes, and of course it all gets whittled down, and you get, you know, two main candidates. Sometimes it's Labor Liberal, sometimes it's Labor National, sometimes it's Greens and one of the majors. Sometimes it's independent and one of the majors. But it it goes down to two candidates after preferences. And so it's not like Britain where it's first past the post, where it's all well and good if there's only two people running. But if you get three people running, you can have up to 70% of people saying, well, we voted for somebody else altogether. And you get someone, I think Tony Blair was on 36% of the vote. 
Boris Johnson's on something like that. Theresa May was on, well, less. George Bush in the States was on 36. Trump was on, you know, it's not a 50% majority, which is what democracy states. Some form of preferential voting is the only sensible way of voting once you get more than two people in it, which almost invariably do. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.